All right, so tonight we are going to be talking about, uh, we're back in Galatians, and so we're going to finish chapter 2 tonight, and this is going to be a very important message tonight. We're going to be attacking one of the verses, or a few of the verses that are used against us, Um, as far as us being those who hold up Torah, hold up the law of God. And it's going to be deep. And so I want to make sure that you grasp what we talk about tonight. All right, so one of the things I want you to understand, because we're going to talk about this from here on out a lot of times, and I think we've mentioned it before, but there are two different kinds of people talked about in Scripture when we refer to Gentiles. There were God-fearers and proselytes. And, or the proselytes basically are this. A God-fearer was Cornelius. Remember in Acts chapter 10, it says that Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was highly respected by the Jews, but just a God-fearer, meaning he was not part of the family of God. He was not welcomed into the synagogue. And the reason being is he was not circumcised. The main difference between a God-fearer and a proselyte was the proselyte had been converted to Judaism by being circumcised. And so here is just a commentary on the epistle to Galatians by F.F. Bruce. And in there it just says, likely to have been a position defended in debate than a matter of practice, those Gentiles who went all the way in the direction of Judaism but stopped short of circumcision were treated as God-fearers. But still outside the Jewish fellowship, they were not part of the family, not admitted as proselytes to membership within it. This is why circumcision was such a big deal here in the first century for the New Testament church. These Jews that even believed in the Messiah, many of them couldn't get this out of their head that you had to be circumcised to be saved. To be a a family of God, you had to be circumcised. Now, a couple of few weeks back, we talked about that was understandable why they believed that. Because in the Old Testament, it said anybody not circumcised is going to be cut off. But we also showed you in Torah that it was prophesied that that would no longer be needed, but instead there would be a circumcision of the heart rather than of the flesh. And so there was a reason given in the Old Testament predicting that this change would happen. So, A big dividing wall between Jew and Gentile was this, this topic of circumcision. In verse 11 here of Galatians, kind of picking up where we've left off, it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him, Paul is speaking here, to his face, because he was to be blamed. So note Peter is not sinless here, like the Catholics would say he is. Peter screwed up here. Uh, on matters of theology, because that is what the Catholics will say, is that their popes, and Peter was the first pope, are sinless when it comes to theology. So here he was clearly not. 
Peter was a great man. But even Peter, this you know, pillar of the faith, was swayed by some of these Judaizers. It was so ingrained in Peter himself that it was hard to get rid of. Just like some of us, some of what we have grown up in in the church, it is so ingrained in us, even though we see the truth in Scripture, it's hard to let go. And that's where Peter was at. Well, as I said, a proselyte has full member status, and therefore you could eat with a proselyte. You would never eat with a God-fearer. That is why it was such a big deal for Peter in Acts chapter 10 to go into the house of Cornelius even. Because he was only a God-fearer. You don't eat with a Gentile unless they're proselytes. And it's interesting here that Antioch, don't forget this because he is coming from where? Antioch. What had happened? Yeah, go ahead. No, Judaizers, for this term, would basically be those who were still holding to the law without Christ, okay. that were more legalistic. Okay. Yeah, good question. So, Peter had come to Antioch. Why is he coming to Antioch? <clears throat> Remember, Galatians is like Acts 2, or Acts is like Galatians 2. What we see, and we've talked about this before, but just to remind you, that Acts and Galatians are like this. You cannot separate those books because what was going on in Acts chapter 15 was the Jerusalem council over this issue of circumcision. And right there in Acts 15, they are sending these apostles back to Antioch to explain to them their decision on circumcision for the Gentiles that you didn't have to be circumcised to be saved, that the Holy Spirit had been given to the Gentiles. And so Peter here is coming from Jerusalem to Antioch to basically even participate and share the good news. But now Paul is here and he has to rebuke him. A little bit about Antioch as well. Remember, this is where Christians, they are first called Christians in Antioch. We see Barnabas was a teacher in Antioch. So Antioch is a pretty, a pretty big place here. This is kind of a, what goes on in Antioch is going to be spread throughout Asia now. It was the first place that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit as well. So they're going back to the beginning of where it all started. So this is not an unfamiliar topic here to the Galatians. Now that's going to be important as well later because you're going to see that because this is not an unfamiliar topic to the Galatians, Paul will not go in greater detail in Galatians as he will in the book of Romans because Roman, the Romans were, he didn't know them very well. They didn't know him very well. <clears throat> So he goes into greater detail explaining the exact same things. So we're going to look at Romans tonight to help you understand what Galatians is saying. Because it's the same thing, but not in, as, uh, in greater detail than it is in Galatians. Now, <clears throat> moving on to verse 12 here, we see 
it goes on, Peter was to be blamed for before certain men came from James, where was that? The Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Remember, James is the guy that makes the final ruling. The Nasi, the head of the church at that time. Church history also supports that. So before certain men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. He knew, he was like, yeah, I don't care if you're just a God-fearer. I will eat with you because the gospel is for you. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Who are those of the circumcision? Those Judaizers, ultimately. The ones that are saying, no, you have to be circumcised to be saved. Peter was afraid of people. Remember Galatians 1.10? If I should yet seek to please men, I should not be a servant of Christ Jesus. I get it. I struggle with that at times myself, wanting to please people over the truth of God's word. And Peter was to be blamed for that, just as I should be at those times as well. But notice that Peter was giving these Gentiles earlier full proselyte status, full membership into the family of God. And now all of a sudden he's saying, oh, no, I'm going to withdraw and basically giving them the message, you're not, you don't have full membership with Jesus, with Christ, because you're not circumcised. There needs to be some work done in order for you to be saved. That was the message Peter was giving. Because he feared those who were of the circumcision. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews, okay, those who knew the truth, also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So, this is exactly what happens when we don't stand on truth. Others follow. We've talked about it before, even the decisions we make in our obedience. If I see a very godly person and they, they start watching rated R movies and they say, you know, I think it's okay because, you know, this and that and, and justify it here or there. Then it makes me feel, you know, what, that, that's probably okay. I, I think I could watch it too. Because it's easy to justify things when we see other Christians doing the same thing. And that's what's going on here with Peter. So, by the way, remember that this is after Peter had the vision of the sheet. Tell it where God told him, point blank, don't call these Gentiles unclean. Circumcised or not, don't call them unclean. So Peter knows the truth. This isn't like, you know, not knowing it. It's, as it says here, fear that's causing him to, to hold back. And... <clears throat> Those kind of compromises are important, I think, when we see what's going on in the world around us today, too. When we see others standing up against our religious freedoms that are under attack today, it encourages others to stand. When we see others shrinking back, it encourages others to do the same. 
And so this context is about the gospel. But it does broaden the scope to even how we live today in what's going on in our country. And the importance of us standing up to be an example and not allowing others to follow in our hypocrisy. Um, I know that when we were in Israel, those of you who went to Israel with us, you know, we got to eat with Ron. He was a Jew. He knows that Jesus is the answer. But yet the Orthodox Jews over there, we could not eat with them. If you would have gone and sat down at a table with the Orthodox, well, they, they would have gotten up and left, if not just told you to get out. It's just like back then. The Judaizers are those Orthodox of today. Ron is one of the Jews who understands what Peter was talking about. Even though we were Gentiles, he considers us to be family. Welcomed in. Now, I also want you to note here what the expectation of the early church was. They expected the Gentiles to behave how? Like Gentiles? No, like Jews. So here is the church, the New Testament church, and the expectation is Gentiles should be behaving like Jews. Right? So don't lose that little logical conclusion here. Um, not for justification. The Judaizers, yes, they expected you to be circumcised for justification, but Paul's going to address that. But even beyond that, they were expected to live in obedience to the law. Not for justification, but out of the heart, because that's what it means to be a Jew. You follow God. Period. So, the context here, though, is simply this. Eating with the Gentiles who are not circumcised. Is that right or wrong? That's the context. And that's important to understand because as we continue here in verse 14, it says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So wait a minute, what were they doing? Just not eating with the Gentiles. And Paul's saying, that's not being straightforward about the gospel. When would you guys think that not eating with somebody is a gospel matter? So don't lose that context here. Because this is a gospel matter. I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Huh. Now that is a very confusing sentence. At least it was to me. Maybe it's clear for you, but it took me some time to kind of wrap my mind around this. In essence, he's saying, he said, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew, what's a Jew? One who knows the truth. One who follows the Lord. So if you, being one who knows the truth, who follows the Lord, live in the manner of Gentiles, now what's the manner of a Gentile? Sin. Now I'm not making that up. Read verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. The context here, you need to understand, 
is those who know truth and those who don't know truth. Those who are sinners and those who are not sinners. That's maybe a paraphrase of the context here. To be a Jew, you had to follow the law. You had to be obedient to God's word. Not that you would be perfect at it, but you had to have a heart to keep it. That made you a Jew. We take pride in being Gentiles, but biblically speaking, it's a shameful thing because they are the ones that did not follow the law. Yes, he is calling Peter a sinner, and here's why. And, this is, and here's why it's a gospel issue. Note in your footnotes in your Bible there where it says, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? You should have a footnote there. And that footnote on the word why shows you that the Greek is really how. Does your say how? What version is that? Is that ESV? Oh, okay. Yeah, it really is how. And that can make, that's a big difference there. Not why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews, but more like how can you compel Gentiles to live as Jews if you're living in sin? In other words, how are you expecting them to live righteously if you are setting a poor example for them and living in sin? That's what it's saying here. Um, Peter basically was living like a Gentile, meaning he was a Jew, technically, that knew the truth, but he lived like a Gentile in untruth, in sin. So why would, you know, you expect the Gentiles to live in truth if you yourself are not living in truth? Peter said, I'm not going to eat with a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile, who was following God, but they weren't circumcised. So what message does that send to that Gentile? I have to be circumcised to be saved. That is another gospel. The true gospel is faith in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, he used to be saying, by faith alone, by grace alone, this is how you're saved. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Clearly, the Holy Spirit has come to you. And now he has withdrawn back and is giving them the message, nope, Jesus is the answer, but you also must be saved through circumcision. That is, that is the exact context of all of this, yes. I mean, yep. Your message is there's more to salvation than believing in Jesus. And so, in truth, what he says here, you being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Um, There are some who like to interpret this here, Paul basically saying this. If you're a Jew and you have rightly abandoned the law of God, living like a Gentile, why do you compel the Gentiles to keep the law like a Jew? By only eating with the Jews. That's how this is typically understood by the church today. Let me, let me say that again so that you follow this. It is typically understood in most churches today because we have rejected the law of God that it's basically saying 
this. If you are a Jew and have abandoned the law of God rightly, living like a Gentile who does not keep the law, why are you compelling Gentiles to keep the law like a good Jew should? That's not what this is saying, but that's how it is interpreted by many in the church today. He's saying, Peter has compromised and is, he should be rejecting the law like good Gentiles. Well, even the context says that can't be true because he's saying Gentiles are the sinners. Jews are the ones that understand the truth. But that is how it is typically explained today. So because of that interpretation, it's commonly you know, understood that this is a passage supporting the doctrine of the law being abolished. The reason that, that the church thinks that is very things like that, where your heading says, get rid of the law. That's not what's happening here. Let Scripture speak. This isn't me saying it. Just, just stop and examine the context here. It would make no sense to say get rid of the law when Peter and Paul are trying to uphold the law in every other book that they write. But this verse is used to say, oh, the law is gone. Peter's getting rid of it. But look at the scriptures. So, um, while many think that Paul's statement of Peter living after the manner of Gentiles, they see that as a positive statement. Look at it. It's not. It's actually a negative one here. I love how he calls him out in front of all his buddies, too. He did. A public sin deserves a public rebuke. There are those who think, oh, we shouldn't you know, publicly rebuke people. If it's a public sin, it needs to be publicly dealt with so that others know it's wrong because it's out there already, so now it has to be addressed. When you believe the law is gone, anytime you see a little sentence that does it, you, you just automatically jump on it without looking at the context. And that is what we have done for so long that we have lost the meaning because we have a bias that we're reading the scriptures with. And that bias is, we've been freed from the law, and therefore it's easy to find all these so-called verses to support it. So, one last time, I, I know I've kind of beat this to death, but it, Paul is basically saying this, Peter, how are you ever going to bring the Gentile sinners into living righteously when you're acting as a sinner yourself? Giving the impression that you must be circumcised to be in the family of God. This is the very convicting statement to Peter that is exposing his hypocrisy. So, extremely important to grasp this because I can't tell you how many times people bring this verse up to me saying, look, we're not to live as Jews. We're supposed to live as Gentiles, free from the law. When it's actually saying the exact opposite just by the scripture itself. I, don't need, I shouldn't have to even interpret it. I'm just trying to get you to look at it to see it, it, it's interpreted by itself. Let me uh, take you to Romans. Because as I said, Romans is basically saying the same thing that Galatians is, but in greater detail. 
Romans 2.26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, Gentiles, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision, his Gentilism, you might say, be counted as circumcision, Judaism, you might say? In other words, if you as a Gentile sinner keep God's commandments, you're no longer a sinner, you're considered a Jew. You're considered circumcised. <clears throat> what is the expectation of a Gentile? To be free from the law? No. To keep the righteous requirements, by the way, of the law. Not to be saved, but a requirement of being saved. It goes on. Verse 27. And will not the physically uncircumcised, again the Gentile, and notice physically, not talking about the heart. He's, he's pointing out the physical nature of a Gentile. If he fulfills the law, obeys God, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. You can be circumcised, you even have the written code, but you're not really doing it. So these Gentiles, who are uncircumcised in the flesh, but are obeying God, will judge you. Verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly in the flesh circumcised, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. What makes you a Jew? Circumcision of the heart. Are you a Jew? Yes. Okay. Um, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, not in the flesh, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So we are to be Jews at heart. You can't compel a Gentile to be circumcised in the flesh to be saved. That is another gospel that we will be reading about later. You add anything to salvation other than Jesus, that is another gospel. And that is what these Judaizers were doing. Adding something to Jesus. Salvation by grace alone. If they don't obey the law, they're still considered uncircumcised in heart. Even if you're a circumcised Jew, you are considered uncircumcised in heart. And vice versa. So note the underlined here, again, if he fulfills the law, that expectation of a Gentile is to obey the law. Not, well... The law is gone. Jesus died for you. You're a Gentile. You're free. You're not a Jew. And we take pride in that fact. We don't have to abide by the law. You don't see that in Scripture. When we obey the law, people say, what are you, Jewish? We kind of talked about this before. The answer is yes, but not physically born. But I've been circumcised of heart. I love the law. I love Israel. I love the Jewish Messiah of whom I have been grafted into. Think about it. You follow a Jewish book. You follow a Jewish Messiah. You follow and listen to Jewish prophets. So what, are you Jewish? Yes, everything about what I believe is Jewish. My Savior, my book, all of it. 
So why wouldn't we be? So Peter was sinning. He was transgressing the law. When he chose to fear men over Yahweh, he was sinning. By pretending he was going along with a false gospel of saying you have to be circumcised to be saved, he was sinning in the greatest of ways. And that is why Paul rebukes him publicly. Because this is a big deal. Because he was playing a hypocrite saying you're not in the family of God because you haven't been circumcised yet. I know you're, you're a God-fearer, meaning you're obeying the commandments of God. You're not drinking, you're not smoking, you're not cussing, you're not drugging, you're not doing any of those things, but you're not circumcised, so you're not with us. You're not a proselyte. You're just a God-fearer. Uh, remember, the whole context of this is Acts 15. Don't lose sight of that. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? He's coming from Antioch, from the Jerusalem Council. This is what he's sharing. So that helps you understand the context here in Galatians 2. So verse 15, back to Galatians. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified, that's the gospel right there, justification, not justified by works of the law, in other words, circumcision, that's the context being spoke of here, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. So now, in case you aren't convinced yet that the context of this was circumcision and eating with a Gentile and finding another way to be saved, he is laying it out. He's saying, we who are Jews, knowing that we are justified not by works but by Jesus alone, we Jews know the truth. Even we who know this truth have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The context here is circumcision and circumcision only. But even though that's the context, the meaning expands to any of the laws of God. Keeping the Sabbath, swearing, Whatever your sin might be, that is not what gets you to heaven. So even though the context is circumcision, it applies to anything outside of circumcision as well. But notice here, again, that Gentile, the term is defined here basically as a sinner. And when he's saying we, that's important. Okay, we who are Jews by nature, and then even we have believed in Christ Jesus, we might be justified by faith. We is becoming both Jew and Gentile. Anybody who believes in Jesus becomes a we here. And Paul is basically reminding Peter about the Jerusalem council by bringing this up. Because this is exactly what Peter said there in Jerusalem. Don't you remember this, Peter? Don't you remember what we had at the Jerusalem Council? We're saved by, justified by Jesus. That's it, not by works. So verse 16 here, summed up, is pretty obvious. You can't be saved by obedience. But you won't be obedient unless you're saved. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you can't understand this very important part in Galatians, 
you're just going to end up in Orthodox Judaism. That's where you'll end up without understanding this extremely important concept. The law does not justify. Your works does not justify. You coming here on Saturday night, you doing the festivals will not justify you. But you're going to do those things because you are justified. Those things are not gone. The law has not been taken away. It is not one jot, not one till has been taken away. But because you are now circumcised in heart, you will have a desire because that law has now been written on your hearts. It has been put in your minds to obey. And you are no longer considered uncircumcised because of that. Because of your faith, the Spirit of God in you empowers you to have a desire to obey the law of God. Even though you're going to fail a lot, there is now no condemnation. And we're going to talk about that here. But it is vital to understand this. Verse 16. Again, that we might, just to look at it one more time, just to kind of highlight it. We might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. I know this is elementary. But I, I, we have to drill this into your mind so that you don't miss it. Because Peter was missing it. Peter, I mean, this guy walked with Jesus. I can't take for granted that just because you guys are believers and you know that you're getting it. Because Peter was a pillar of the faith who walked with Jesus, who was at the Jerusalem Council, who even saw this great sheet and, and told by God himself not to call the Gentiles unclean, is now doing that very thing, calling the Gentiles clean. So I'm not going to apologize for beating a dead horse. And this is why Paul is so great about using the Old Testament, the Torah, to prove his points. And if the Torah is gone, we got nothing to prove our point with. If you don't have Torah today, you cannot even prove that Jesus is by faith alone. You need Torah to prove that because it was predicted that that would come, as we've said before. So it goes on, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So as we look at this again, I just, again, many pastors today use this to say the law is done away with. But as we see the context that I've just described, you see that's not what this is saying, is it? Not saying the law is done away with. It's saying there's no, the law will never bring justification. It will never make you right with God. So, what's interesting though, is as we, Paul has a way, as Daniel Joseph calls them, anchor statements. Just to make sure that you can't under, misunderstand Paul, because remember the disciples say that Paul, many of his writings are hard to understand, which many who lack knowledge, who, who have strayed from the faith, have twisted. That is what has happened in, in modern day Christianity. Paul's words have been twisted to say Paul got rid of the law. And Paul is going out of his way here in the next verse, using an anchor statement to make sure that you don't say that. Because by this alone, maybe you could say that. If you isolate this one verse, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So therefore, let's get rid of the law. But, 
is the very next word. That's a big but. It is a big but. <laughs> we have to, he's throwing an anchor statement. What is an anchor statement? It is something to make sure that you don't move from a, from a position, that you stand firm. But if, while we seek to be justified, by what? By faith. Okay, he just said that. By Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. By the way, that would be, you could also paraphrase that Gentiles, because that's the context of what he's been saying. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. In other words, but if while you in faith live in lawlessness, if you live in sin, you're making yourself a transgressor, then Christ cannot allow for sin. If you seek to be justified but live in sin, you will not be justified. You're not saved. Though you're not saved by those works, you can't be saved without them. Because... Your faith and works are working together. Faith without works is dead, James says. So it's that paradox, but yet it really isn't. To me, it seems very simple. The works don't save me, but because I'm saved, I do them. I want to do them. And when I fail, I'm forgiven. Praise God. But don't forget this anchor statement that everybody wants to quote verse 16, but they don't use verse 17 in addition to. If you seek to be justified by faith and continue to be disobedient, continue to break the law, then you're in trouble because Christ, the obvious answer is, is he a minister of sin? No, certainly not. 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness so therefore Galatians is saying you can't seek Christ and be found living in lawlessness so I'm going to show you an exact example of this as well another anchor statement in Romans saying the exact same thing Romans 6 again Romans and Galatians basically the same thing for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law but under grace this is thrown out at us all the time. But he throws an anchor statement in the very next verse. Okay, what then? Shall we sin? Shall we be disobedient to the law? Because we are not under law but under grace? No way, certainly not, absolutely no. You see, we like to quote verse 14, say, oh, we're not under the law, so it's okay. But he's saying, you're not under law, but it's still not okay to be disobedient to the law. It is not the law that keeps us from sinning. It is the love of Jesus that keeps us obeying the law. Chapter 7, Romans 7, just the very next chapter, just not even very far ahead of that. It says, but now we have been delivered from the law. Oh, no, we're not under law anymore. Having died to what we were held by, you were held by the law, bound by it, so that we should serve. Wait, isn't service action in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter? 
Again, this is twisted by isolating it so that we can say the law has been thrown away. But that's not what it's saying. There's another anchor statement here. The law is good as long as one uses it properly, Timothy says. So keep this context here because the very next verse is an anchor statement to make sure you can't misunderstand this by saying the law has been thrown away. What then shall we say then? Is the law sin? No way. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So, He's saying, no, the law is good. It's done a lot of good things. I'm not saying get rid of the law. I'm saying you are not under the law. I am saying the law does not condemn you anymore. And you're going to see that as he continues in verse 9. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So what did the law do? It brought death to you. You were under it. You were bound to it. It killed you. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good has then what is good become death to me. Here's that anchor statement. Has what was good become death so that it's no longer good? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly or carnal, sold under sin. There's a lot here. I'm going to sum it up here pretty quickly. And you can go back and look at this on your own, and, and I think you'll understand. But you can, I, I totally get why Christians run from the word law. But yet Paul says it's good. Does something that is holy and just and good sound like something we should run away from? No. So verse 13, throwing that anchor statement, saying, we keep the law, but how do we do it? By the Spirit. Not by the flesh. Notice he says the law is spiritual. That's important because he's going to continue. And right after he tells us the law is spiritual... Look what he tells us here in chapter 8, verse 6. For to be carnally minded, to be of the flesh, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. He just told us that the law was spiritual. So to be spiritually minded is in a sense to be law-minded. And what does that bring? Life, peace, joy, happiness, contentment, relationship with Jesus. 
It brings good things. Because the flesh, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I say this all the time. Guys, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with you. The problem is how you use the law. As Peter said, the law is good as long as you idiots use it properly. That's my paraphrase. How do we use the law lawfully? By the spirit, not by the flesh. I was telling Lance and Vicky today, if I go help an old lady across the street and Simeon goes and helps an old lady across the street, Simeon is doing it because he is genuinely concerned to get that lady across safely. He has a love for that person. That is a gospel-oriented service or obedience to the law. If I'm doing it because I'm hoping that she might give me a tip or I notice that somebody over there is watching me and I'm hoping that I look good, then that same act of obedience is now of the flesh and is carnal and is death. The problem isn't in the act of obedience, in obeying the law. The problem is in what spirit is it being done, in the flesh or in the spirit. So, Spurgeon said discernment isn't being able to tell right from wrong, but telling right from what appears to be right. Again, note, I'm not interpreting law to be spiritual. Paul is. This is what he's saying. And he continues his frame of thought here as he continues. But if you're obeying the law in the flesh, notice that you cannot will not ever be able to please God. If you're keeping the Sabbath because you think that's making you a good Christian, you cannot, will not, be able to please God. If you're keeping the Sabbath because you love Jesus and you want to please Him because of your love for Him, then that's good. We've used that example before. If my wife feels loved by me writing notes to her, I should write notes to her. I don't write notes to her, and she does. I'm terrible at it. But I should. Okay? So that's basically what it's saying. Anyway, back to Galatians. I think we've covered that. Verse 17. Again, kind of just revisiting this one more time. But if while we seek to be justified by faith, by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners living in disobedience to the law, is Christ therefore a minister of, the law, or of sin? Certainly not. You know, here in Matthew chapter 7, it's kind of small, but remember this is Jesus saying, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That word iniquity in the Greek is anomia. Literally means violation of the law. That is the very definition. Illegality is another option. That's Strong's Greek lexicon. 
So the truth is that those claim to follow Yeshua but want to continue to live a life of sin by transgressing the law, Torah, are in big trouble. This is why, as I've said many times, the Antichrist is the man of what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. And yet the church is the very one telling us the law is gone. What's being said here is that if one chooses to build again the things which I destroyed, we make ourselves a transgressor and are rebuilding the sin that was placed upon us before we died to the law, in essence. That there was a wall of separation that Jesus came to tear down. The Jews would never eat with the Gentile. That wall of separation was torn down because now it's by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And now Peter is trying to build that wall back up. That's what was going on. Verse 18. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, that wall of separation, I make myself a transgressor, a sinner, a lawbreaker. Christ does not allow us to live in willful sin. I, I would say you don't know Christ if that's what you do. I'm not saying if I obey the law I make myself a sinner, which is often how this is misunderstood. What was destroyed ultimately was justification by circumcision or any other law. By keeping the law, you are justified. That is what was destroyed. Verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Again, if we just look at that by itself, I'm dead to the law, so the law, I don't need to obey it anymore. That's not what this is saying. Romans 6.11 says the exact same thing. Again, Romans and Galatians, the same stuff. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. So, live to God, alive to God. Died to the law, dead to sin. So you might say, is the law sin? Because they seem to be used interchangeably here. It almost sounds like it. But that is not what he's saying as you're going to see uh, if it were, the rest of the Bible in, in its context couldn't stand. That would be a huge contradiction. So Romans is going to be very important to help us understand this. Even though it sounds like the law is sin, Paul's going to throw an anchor statement again to show you that there, it's not the same thing. Okay? He says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Same thing Galatians was saying. Same thing he said in chapter 6 through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit. You died to the law in order that you might keep the law. Go figure. That you bear fruit, do good works. What should we say then? Is the law sin? That was the very question I just asked. No way. Certainly not. On the contrary, meaning not, is it not, not only is it not sin, it's good. So, 
we bear fruit, not because the law motivates us to bear fruit, but because the Spirit does. The Spirit is the new covenant. Remember Jeremiah 31 again. He told us what the new covenant would be. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah at that time. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when they disobeyed long ago, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with, their for, or with them at that time. I will put my law in their hearts. And I will write it in their minds. So the law was never taken away. Its location was changed. So that now we bear fruit not because the law motivates us. The law kills us. But the Spirit brings it to life. Because we do it properly. So being dead to the law clearly does not mean being dead to obeying it but rather dead to its condemnation. We're still expected to obey the law and bear fruit. So to understand what this is saying in Galatians, what it's saying in Romans, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's other words. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Again, another verse that we see used to say, law is gone, see, the law is a bad thing, because the strength of sin is the law. It's not what this is saying. Sin, I say, have here will dig your grave, but the law is what puts you in it. What's that mean? Well, let me put it this way. Daniel Joseph kind of gave an analogy that I very good to help me understand it. When a snake bites you, if it's a venomous snake, you're going to die. If it's not a venomous snake, you're not going to die. So the bite of that snake is sin. Will that kill you? No. That sin didn't kill you. What's going to kill you is the venom. The venom is the law. Sin is the bite. The law is the venom. So sin, the bite has no power without the law, the venom. And Jesus is the anti-venom. Romans says this somewhere. I think maybe chapter 5. It says, Sin was not taken into account when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who, who did not break a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But notice that sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Sin, the bite, is not taken into account if there is no venom. In other words, sin will dig your grave, but that's fine. You're not going in it without the venom that puts you in that grave. Relationship of sin and the law here in Romans 8. Jesus being the anti-venom. There is therefore now no condemnation. In other words, no venom to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There it is again, over and over. The flesh versus the Spirit. You walk in the flesh, and you're obeying in the flesh, guess what? The venom remains. You walk in the Spirit under Jesus and His grace, He's the anti-venom. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Free from obedience? Free from obeying the law? No. Free from the condemnation of the law. Free from the venom that kills you. That's what this is talking about. It doesn't get rid of the law because we have been bit by sin and the venom is in us. Christ makes it harmless to us, though. All right, Galatians 2.20, verse 20. He goes on, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so now he's talking about flesh just as we, but we live in Christ in this flesh. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6.1, basically saying the same thing. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Sin is lawlessness. So should we, continue to, should we break the law that grace can abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Meaning you died to the condemnation of it. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk. That's obedience in newness of life. So Paul is found dead with Jesus, but also raised to life through him. Through that death, we die to the condemnation of the law, the power of that venom. So, when we die with Jesus, we die to the power or venom of the law. It can no longer condemn us. It isn't that we no longer sin, but rather there's no power in that sin. Since it has no power over us, why would we live in it any longer? Why beat yourself up? Oh, this is the third time I've done this. How can God love me? Why do that? Why beat yourself up? Because the power of sin has been conquered. And do you know how many Christians I know who live a defeated life because they haven't grabbed on to that simple truth? They beat themselves up because they, they'll never be good enough. Oh, I, I know, but boy, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. Venom, the anti-venom is here. That's why it's important to understand this. You see, if you think that, oh, but you don't know what I've done, that is the law in the flesh. That is being under the law. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm not under the power of that venom. So, why continue living as if we are justified by law? Why not walk in the newness of the Spirit instead? That's obeying by the circumcision of the heart. 
So you may be thinking, boy, I got off a track of Galatians. No, this is the issue Peter is doing. He is putting them under the law. He is putting them back under the venom and saying you have to be circumcised to be justified. No wonder Paul was so upset. Verse 21, and then we're almost done here now. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So Paul says that he himself as a Jew doesn't put aside the grace of God, but he trusts in it for salvation. By the way, that indicates then the Galatians are setting aside the grace of God, and they're denying it. So from this point, he's going to pick up in chapter 3 next week. So try and remember that concept. I think we've gone over it enough that you will, but nonetheless. So I'm going to recap here. When Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles, a people who were formerly idol worshipers, sinners, uh, still learning about the Torah, still learning about the law of God, he was suggesting that they had not yet received salvation and they were unworthy to sit with him at the table. Remember, the whole thing that Paul sees is he's not eating with the Gentiles. But he did before. But he did before. <laughs> you might look at that, what's the big deal? And then that whole thing causes this, this monologue. All about eating because he was saying that these Gentiles had not, they, they were unworthy to eat with him. By his example, he was suggesting that he agreed with those of the circumcision, those, that group, that the Gentiles had to be circumcised to keep Torah in order to be accepted by Yahweh, to be accepted into the family of believers, to be a proselyte's the only way that you can be saved. But in Yeshua, all we need to do is repent, turn away from sin, turn towards righteousness, and then Yahweh purifies our hearts by faith, giving us grace to learn his commandments. Ability to obey those commandments at a pace that we can bear. I've said it before, I am so glad God didn't show me everything that I know today. At one time, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't be here. He spoon-fed me, and I'm still learning. And I know you guys are in the same boat, and I might be given bigger spoonfuls than I should at times. I don't know. But nonetheless, he gives it to us at a grace that we can bear, an understanding of it, without fear of condemnation. And that's the key. So if I would sum up this message of what's going on in Galatians, it's right here. The good news of the circumcision, that group, or the good news of the gospel. The good news of the circumcision that Paul is preaching against is you have to repent and accept Yeshua, then you learn the Torah, then you obey it, and you get circumcised, and then you will be declared as Abraham's seed. You'll be righteous then. But Paul is saying that's not true. This is the true gospel. You repent, you believe in Yeshua, that makes you Abraham's seed. And I would maybe add, and then you're going to start obeying. 
because of that. So that is the, the whole confusing message, hopefully made pretty simple. So, all right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for being the complete gospel. God, we ask that you would continue to teach us your ways so that we may know you, that we may continue to walk in your ways and continue to find favor with you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to understand your law, not to be justified, but to please you. Because we love you, and that's what we want. We want to lay our life down. Take away and strip us of all of our culture and upbringing and and false theologies, and let your word speak. Let your spirit teach us through the word. In your holy and precious and powerful name, a name above all names, and by the name of which all things were created, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.